Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers short-lived Nard reports into Bob's Beat, in which Bob Greaves just sort of walked round a bit and nothing really happened. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seemed to, is writer Chris Hughes. Chris, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, you can hear me talking about old telly on the What We Just Watched podcast from TV Cream at tvcream.co.uk. And you can also read my stuff in TV Years magazine. And there's a special children's TV edition of that out now. Right. Well, sadly, your first choice hasn't been covered either in TV Years or in what we just watched. (laughs) I really, really long for the day when it is covered in the latter. And because (laughs) there's just nothing of it out there, here's a slightly related clip. Celebrated pages of CFAX music, Ruby by Bart, or is it Bart by Ruby? I can't really remember. Anyway, the reason we use something for pages of CFAX is because your first choice, Chris, is sort of CFAX related. Buzzfax. So, this is one of the great obscure curiosities in the history of children's television, I think. Buzzfax was a one off Saturday morning kids' show. I mean, maybe show is being a bit generous. <laughs> in August 1981, For one week only, the BBC did an experiment where all the regular summer Saturday morning children's programmes were linked together by this sort of CFAX character called Buzz, who was uh, a sort of blocky sprite. I mean, his his form was completely dictated by uh, the limitations of the the teletext graphic protocols that were everything from the weather map of the UK to the TARDIS had to be depicted in block form. Um, I mean, there, there were no curved edges in the world of CFAX. He did have a, a sort of blocky bow tie, which you can see if you look at the relevant page in the Radio Times. So there's a bit of sartorial flair going on with him. For me, this is just kind of a, a yeah, really exciting thing because I was sort of obsessed with CFAX at the time. This is 1981, so it's kind of pre-breakfast time. So they used to put pages from CFAX on in the gap between Open University and programmes for schools and colleges. So I used to get up early and, and, and watch this. And so when Buzzfax came along, I was, I was really excited. Well, the most obvious thing about it was it was actually sort of a linking device for other programmes. It wasn't really a programme in its own right, but weirdly, it had an element of interactivity, because as I remember rightly, I mean, you mentioned there was the, the one bit of evidence of it out there. It's that illustration of Buzz in Radio Times, but in John Craven's back pages, didn't they have some sort of interactive quiz questions that interacted with his links? I think so. I mean, I've, I have looked up the, the actual Radio Times billing. So it ran from 9.30 to 10.52, which is that kind of thing. 
I'll, I'll move to you on a Saturday morning because you had to have three minutes for Jack Scott to take you through the day's weather prospects before grandstand. And so it was 9.30 to 10.52, and the actual programmes that were within BuzzFax were a cartoon called Dinky Dog, which I have no real recollection of whatsoever. It's drawing a blank with me too. Apparently it's some kind of Popeye spin-off. I don't know how. All I know of that is just the title. There was an episode of The Monkeys. Of course there was an episode yeah. of The Monkeys. It's the 1980s. It's the summer holidays. There's an episode of Battle of the Planets and there was a black and white Edgar Kennedy short. But the actual BuzzFax bits, there was a quiz which I think they set during the course of the morning. There was a sort of section on Things you can do today. (laughs) (laughs) Be made out of mode 2 text. (laughs) Well, it does promise that there's a kind of an answer to the back page puzzle, which is obviously related to John Craven's back page in Radio Times. But when you look at the back page, that relevant edition of Radio Times, there is no sort of special BuzzFacts quiz. Really? No, exactly. So maybe they're just giving you the answers to the regular John Craven-related quiz. Oh, well, don't tell the Daily Mail. I mean, that's early BBC fakery right there. <laughs> but the weird thing about the actual choice of programmes was, because my recollection is, between the programmes, it had, as you say, C-Factor's renditions of the faces of characters from them, yeah. including all four monkeys from the, the bit where it pans around their faces in the opening titles. Oh, right, OK. It's worth remarking on, the episode of the monkeys was A Royal Flush. Now, when was it ever not... Not a royal flush. <laughs> always that one. The Battle of the Planets was part one of the Fierce Flowers, which yes. was the really adult one about the, well, say man-eating flowers. They were, it appears, specifically woman-eating flowers. And as we discussed in the edition with Ray Earl, there's some very disturbing undertones to it, which have kind of been lost in translation. But twice... They tried to hide that episode when no one could (laughs) see it. In the middle of BuzzFacts, and on the morning, I think it was the 29th of December, 1980. But, you know, when nobody would be watching at half 11 in the morning. They obviously knew it was trouble. So they tried to, like, frame it in a way where it wouldn't be noticed. And the buzz was, like, the ultimate deterrent, really. I wonder what they were trying to do with BuzzFacts, though. Because, I mean, like you say, it only lasted one week. Yeah. Would you think they they thought it had some either tech potential or merch? Merchandising potential, and it obviously it just didn't work. Well, I say it didn't work, but everyone who saw it remembers it. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. It, was on, yeah. it was one of the very first things I looked for when I first discovered the internet, just yeah. to prove I hadn't made it up. I think it was one of the first things when Phil Norman first did what became TV Cream. Yeah. I think it was on his initial list of programmes. So it really seared itself into everyone's memory. Well, it's, it's very much of that era where you still had BBC boffins. <laughs> this is around the time that kind of CFAX was, yeah, I was talking about pages from CFAX earlier. This is when, when it was very, very starting to kind of seep into the public consciousness. And this is a time where you just had the first series of Three of a Kind, where you know, the opening oh, yes. titles had blocky renditions of Lenny, David and Tracy, and you had gag fans yeah. between the sketches so i kind of think maybe they kind of felt well a, a this is a good kind of promotional tool for you know for c-facts and b maybe we can use this in a sort of this is sound impossibly grand, in an editorial sense maybe we can get, actually get some programs out of this but it, it seems very odd that they would just do it once and that's it forever and it has completely disappeared to the extent mm. i've never been able to determine whether the links actually still exist in the archives or not because you know you try getting somebody to look for that yeah. it's not findable but i mean even to the extent of i've been told that on tv cream we credit three different people with, as narrator of it 
<laughs> and I don't even remember there being a narrator. So that that's interesting in itself. But nothing has turned up. Absolutely nothing. And there must have been there must have been people taping the monkeys. Yeah. There must have been people taping Battle of the Planets. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's taping Edgar Kennedy in the Big Beef, but that's another <laughs> question. But there must be bits of it out there somewhere, and yet they've never resurfaced. Well, exactly. And you would think that somebody who was involved in it would have recorded the whole thing. And somehow that would have sort of remained on a shelf somewhere and would have by now sort of seeped out on, on, onto YouTube, on, onto the Internet. So I was trying to work out what maybe happened to the actual kind of links between the shows. And I kind of like I thought maybe there's a there's some kind of five inch floppy that was <laughs> hanging around in the CFAX office for years and years and ended up being used as a coaster. Or something. We definitely need to get Dick Fiddy or yeah. on the cage with Buzzfax because it is it is kind of in its own tiny little way a kind of a, a little piece of of telly history, I think. And yet, you know, CFAX itself was supposedly so ephemeral, but so many things that people remember. I mean, the one that it's recently come back to haunt me again was Paul Darrow's face when they announced the subtitles before Blake Seven <laughs> in blue and yellow. Just before we move on to the next shows, what was your favourite big CFAX rendition? I've recently discovered there's a little five-minute feature from Swap Shop where they do their kind of classic, let's go out and to see what's going on in TV centre. And they send Maggie Philbin into, into the CFAX office. At the end, as, as you know, the big payoff, they've made a CFAX Noel. <laughs> it, it is actually quite good. It's, it's very much of the same stock as the Lenny, David and Tracy images from Three of a Kind. It's, it's very effective. But no, if you, watch, if, if you watch the clip, Noel's not that impressed. I was going to say, I would wager that there'd already be one attempt and he'd sent it back and said, make me more <laughs> handsome. I mean, I'm saying nothing about the difference in the caricatures of the open title Tally Addicts between him and everyone else, but... <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. Okay, well, we're staying with Badly Random Mascots for your second choice, and it's going to be a bit of a running theme in this edition. I've got nothing directly to use as a clip for this, so here's a bit of music. Help the agent. One time they were just like you. Drinking, smoking, sex and sniffing. Okay, that was Pulp singing Help the Aged, because well, I'm not going to try and contrive anything clever here. Chris, Hector the Help the Aged dog. So he comes under the category, I think, of late 70s, early 80s canine charity mascots, if such a category exists. So Hector came into my life, if I was not putting it too boldly, when our school took part in a sponsored fundraiser for Help the Aged. This must have been about 1980, which involved putting as many different things inside a matchbox as you can. I've been trying to remember over, over the last couple of days whether actually Hector came to our school in, in, physical, <laughs> in physical form or whether they were just kind of like leaflets and posters of him and, and things like that. So the memory cheats, obviously, but I, I like to imagine that, that he kind of he kind of came in, he ducked his big head under the door frame and kind of sort of encouraged us all to sort of start collecting stuff. He was normally, I think, to be found in the form of one of those big sort of furry football mascot costumes. He was a biped. The other thing that kind of I remember distinctly about about this whole endeavour is that 
prior to this happening, I'd always assumed it was help the aged, not help the aged. This kind of slightly weird Shakespearean <laughs> of aged. So kind of Hector is kind of stuck in my memory for quite a long time. Longer, actually, than I can remember what I actually put in the matchbox or how many things I managed to get in there. You, they, they all had to be different. You couldn't just like put like 200 paper clips or whatever. They all had to be separate, different things. I do remember distinctly, though, that it was a an England's Glory matchbox. I, I remember that quite clearly. I think there were things like kind of a button, a screw, a roll plug, you know, little, little things like that. Isn't that Mr. Duckadam's song from Camberwick? <laughs> <laughs> well, very, very possibly. So I, one person I, I kind of have mentioned this to, it said that it was a kind of thing that Jeremy Beadle used to do on his LBC radio. Yes, I was just thinking that, yeah. It's very much of that category, isn't it? I also remember that some years later, Harry from number 73 setting this whole endeavour as, as, as a competition. So it's one of those things that obviously kind of, you know, sort of bubbled up every now and again when, when people were really stuck for an idea. <laughs> Did you win the competition? Well, this is the thing. I don't think it was a competition in, in that sense. I think you, 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 it was basically a sponsorship thing. So you would be sponsored for the, the number of things you successfully managed to get in the matchbox. As I say, I can't remember how many things I actually managed to get in there. I just remember the whole kind of excitement because it's, it's actually quite a fun thing to do when you're eight, you know, and you, you know, you've got very little else to fill your spare time. You're kind of rummaging around the house. And, you know, once you've gone beyond, like, I suppose about 20 things, you're really struggling for, you know, another different thing to put in there. Well, apparently there's a whole Hector club. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of mentions of it online. There's very little evidence apart from there's lots of badges, all of which appear to have a little bit of rust around the edges, so they obviously weren't very well made. There's also Hector's book of gifts and games. It's worth saying at this juncture, I didn't know what Hector looked like, and he looks like a melting 5.45pm cartoon. <laughs> he's not the best real-life mascot in the world. Though. I don't know if he's different in anthropomorphic yeah. form, but it's not really eye-catching. No. I mean, well, the thing is, it has just occurred to me that Hector is actually a very good name for a fundraising charity. Yes. <laughs> That's basically what he's doing. He's going into schools and hectoring kids to, to, to help the aged. Well, it has reminded me of, I've never been sure whether this was a regional thing or not, but there used to be a fire brigade thing called Wellifant. <laughs> it used to go around schools. It was like a man in a big sort of red elephant costume with a fire yeah. helmet on, basically saying, don't start fires. <laughs> but the main reason I remember it was when it was launched, sort of at least locally, there's a feature on it in Liverpool Echo, it had a photo in the middle of the text of the Wellifant costume, but not, you know, meeting the public or shaking hands with children. Mm. It was a face-on shot, <laughs> as though it was like, I don't know, Tiny Roland bidding for Harrods or something. <laughs> well, I've got the image of, like, you know, make sure you get my good side. <laughs> But there, there, was a, there was, certainly during the, the era that we went to school, of people coming into your school, even if it was kind of as mundane as an elephant telling you not to stop flying. <laughs> it was just such a kind of lovely break from the daily round of lessons. You know, you troop into the assembly hall and, you know, now children, we've got a special surprise for you today. Here's Hector. Here's Wellifant. Here's Mr. Policeman Badger. But there was one that gives it a slightly more sinister sheen, which is a now-discredited celebrity used to do for a regional news programme a feature every Christmas where he yeah. went around schools on an open-top bus dressed as Father <laughs> Christmas collecting canned goods. 
And for years, that was one of my sort of retro nostalgia standbys, was to mention that. I think I actually, I did the Santa Dash a couple of years ago, prior to Revelations coming out. I think I sold it to people sponsoring me on the basis of, it's the best campaign since name redacted went around schools collecting canned goods. And it's... No, that just all seems very unsavoury. Well, that was very much of the brand of, of the redacted personality, that of his role on that programme, in that kind of he would like to get out and, and meet his people, and I think he very much saw them as his people. This was kind of the era where you kind of like, you know, that sort of thing would happen, and, you know, kind of organisations, you know, be it a charity or, you know, a regional TV programme or whatever, would kind of like get out there. You know, we're going out and about. Yeah, it's something that does... I don't know if it really happens, anymore to be honest because it's more about people sending their sort of experience of things in yeah absolutely i think you're i, I, I think you're right yeah definitely so were there any other famous visitors to your school one very famous visitor does come to mind and it is mr david prowse in the guise of the green cross code man not in his other famous <laughs> role sad, sadly you know he was the tour de force you know, he kind of came in, he dispensed his road crossing advice, he dispensed bonhomie, he dispensed badges, which I imagine are also kind of rusting around the edges now. He played his latest record. No, uh, the Green Cross Code song! Um, Stop, look, listen and think. Yes! <laughs> also did a bit of a comedy riff on, no, it's not stop, look, listen and stink. Went down well with us, ten-year-old. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, Mr. Prowse would definitely be the most famous visitor to to our school, definitely. Okay, well, I'm trying to make a good link here and failing. We are kind of staying in the world of superheroes-ish <laughs> for your next choice. Here's a bit of a pop record, which might not sound like it's related to your choice, but it actually is, and we'll find out why in a minute. That was Talk To Me by late synth stroke early new romantic band Mainframe, who you might remember were one of Mark Griffiths' choices when he appeared on the show. But that, Chris, came free with a magazine. It did come free with a magazine, or perhaps I should say a comic, or perhaps I should say the galaxy's first computer comic. Load Runner. Now, Load Runner was one of those products which came out of the great home computer boom of 1983, which was a terribly exciting time for me. So there were always kind of computer magazines kind of coming out from all different publishing houses, coming from all directions. So what they did with this was, let's make a computer comic. And it was very much in the vein of the relaunched Eagle, which had come out the year before. It's on that same sort of almost but not quite glossy paper that they used for Eagle. It's basically what Eagle would have been if they'd replaced Doomlord and Mike Reed with Manic Miner and Ian McNaught Davis. It was a kind of mixture of drawn cartoon strips and those photo strips that you used to get in sort of girls' photo love comics like My Guy and Blue Jeans, which meant there's, there's a, there was a bit of a sort of kind of culture clash going on with those. There's one called Schools for Software, where our heroine, the fantastically named 
Bev Jevons. So there's this fantastic scene of her gazing into kind of a classic 1980s computer shop window saying 48k spectrum reduced to £129.95. I couldn't even afford the 29. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I know. It's one of those kind of, it's one of those strips where the school bullies would say, well, look who it isn't. The main strip was about the load runner himself who was a futuristic micro-mechanic and troubleshooter called Mike Roman or Mike Roman or, you know, however you want to say it. In a totally original plot, he somehow found himself being sucked into a computer to play the games for real. There was actually one where he played Horace and the Spiders... <laughs> Having defeated the spiders, it started to snow and suddenly they were kind of on a mountainside and and the only way to escape was on skis. There was a football strip, which was a a, a drawn artist strip. It was set in 1993 called Andy Royd, the Dominator's Rogue Star. So it was set in a futuristic world where all footballers had been replaced by robots, except for one who called himself Andy Royd and he sort of dressed up in the kind of in the robotic football costume and and played for real for some reason. There was a page called Brainy's Brain Box where you could write in with questions like, my parents want to know if there is a program you can obtain to help them win the pools, which I remember was when when computers first became sort of started infiltrating the mainstream. That was the number one objective of buying a computer. You could win the pools. You could get you could get a program that would make you Win the pools. I also, you know, kind of remember there was a feature with Paul Daniels talking about his his love of home computers and how he wanted to get a computer which so he could catalogue all his magic tricks. It felt like one of those things where they were kind of sort of they didn't really have any template to rely on, so they just they were just flinging anything at at the wall and, and sort of hoping hoping it would stick. As we just heard, one issue came with a flexi disc. I think it's the first time I'd ever seen a flexi disc with a song by the group Mainframe. And it also had on the disc a computer program which you could load into your computer and which apparently provided a sort of rudimentary video to go with the song. And I say apparently because I could never, ever get it to work. I've only recently discovered that actually it's nigh on impossible to get a computer program onto a flexi disc or even a vinyl record because there's just too much noise for it for it to kind of load successfully into the computer. So Load Runner was a very kind of short-lived product of, of that era uh, to the point where I'd bought it for a few weeks and kind of completely blown away by this kind of this sort of cocktail of <laughs> ZX Spectrums and Oric Ones and Paul Daniels. I did that thing where you kind of like you kind of place a regular order with Mr. Newsagent. <laughs> I sort of sat back at home waiting for the, you know, this, this, this fortnightly explosion of fun to kind of drop through my letterbox. Days went by, weeks went by. There were no more issues of Loadrunner coming through the door. And kind of so eventually I was so, so distraught by this. I went to check at the news agency, see what had gone wrong. And it turned out that Loadrunner had just closed down after 13 issues. So that's the only time I've ever sort of subscribed to a magazine or, or a comic and never actually got any issues because it had just completely shut down. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, I'm not sure whether I actually ever got an issue or not, but I have found there are some scans online, and it really doesn't surprise me to close down that quickly, because just looking at it, I mean, not making any sort of gender denigrations here, but let's be honest, their target audience was largely boys. Yeah. 
yeah. which meant that the school photo strip, yeah. which to me it looked like the Mr. Kennedy and Mr. Harris sketches with Mr. Fun. <laughs> it just looked uncannily like that. But that was kind of seen at the time, or at least young boys was thought that's what they have in girls' comics. Yeah. Lone Runner himself was there was that thing around them where I think it was a post two thousand AD thing where everyone seemed to try to do characters that were, you know, a bit Judge Dredd, a bit Star Lord. I mean obviously, you know, Marvel rather than two thousand AD, but they just made them serious yeah. and heroic and there wasn't it was like something out of you know the tiger or hot spur or something it didn't yeah. have that comic edge or you know the flawed hero yeah. It was just somebody in a computerish suit. I can't see that really catching on. The other thing is Brady from Brady's Brain Box just looks punchable <laughs> in the drawing. Yeah, I completely agree. Maybe you know, when it turns out that you couldn't win the polls. As I alluded to earlier, it's kind of one of those things where it is very flawed, but you know, they were just completely, obviously, making it up as they went along. There was no sort of template. There was no manual to creating a product like this. I probably bought the first issue a few weeks after I, I got my first ZX spectrum and the whole thing at the time was was just hugely exciting and it's also worth saying paul daniels was a really enthusiastic early adopter of home computing i remember him being in a lot of things talking about his experiences with mainly seemed to be like he wasn't very good at games but he got the better of them because he turned the computer off so it's like (laughs) that'll teach you but even you know when you think about how early he was on twitter and there's that famous exchange that i had with him where he said something about restaurants he'd been to and how nice the food was and i replied how much did you have of it paul and he replied saying i see what you're trying to do there son (laughs) <laughs> made my day but he also he'd had the foresight to I think Debbie had a recipe book out in the 90s yeah. Yeah. and he'd had the foresight to have a PDF of that made at the time because yeah. I know my friend Estelle was after a copy of that and she said on Twitter he just emailed it to her for somebody he was as roundly ridiculed as he was he was really into his tech oh definitely definitely I have fun memories of him well he seemed to be for a very long time selling off old stuff on eBay and then you could sort of track the feedback that he'd been both getting, <laughs> oh, leaving, and um, yeah, it was kind of mostly. I think both both ways quite positive. But he was very enthusiastic. I think he had very. I think he had a very good feedback rating on on eBay. For. Sure, he didn't just change it and say, "Now that's magic." <laughs> <laughs> so, can I ask you, Tim? Do you have any memories of kind of short-lived comics? that you kind of you got very invested in and then, and then they just sort of closed down well but actually i have just remembered one which was there was a very short-lived top cat comic where it reprinted all the old hannah barbera strips from the 60s and it had things like the impossibles and space ghost in it and obviously because it wasn't current active stuff you know because it was going to do a hey it's the king or janitor the jungle strip but it didn't last very long i was fascinated by that yeah. And I just remember it had a, a build a Scooby vehicle in it, but it wasn't the mystery machine. So oh. It was obviously a right thing. It was some kind of carty, I think, and it had fi- figures of, of them and Oggy Doggy to go in it. Well, at least Low Runner had a point and a target audience in mind. Your next choice, I'm not sure who it was aimed at, but as we're going to see, that was a bit of an issue around that time. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, that's Elton John and George Michael counting down the list of women they would like to get it on with from 1985's Wrapper Up. Chris, I believe this was part of the Gillette video show. It was part of the Gillette video show. When I went to see Rocky IV in January 1986, which which I think is a somewhat underrated entry in the Rocky canon, it's got a very great training montage. The supporting feature was a thing called the Gillette Video Show. So basically it was a sort of promotional vehicle for Gillette phrases. It just basically consisted of two pop videos. The two pop videos were Hit That Perfect Beat, by Bronski Beat. And this was the all-new Bronski Beat, Sans Somerville, with the new lead singer, John Foster. And the second video was Rapper Up by Elton John, featuring George Michael, featuring Kiki D. I don't, I don't think either of those were actually sort of credited as, you know, featured artists. And one thing I distinctly remember about watching that video on the big screen is that there's a sequence during the video where Elton appears to sort of shimmy in midair between two pianos and, you know, everybody laughed. Everybody in the audience laughed because, you know, <laughs> he's so flamboyant. Isn't he? what, what an entertainer. I, I don't want to let daylight in on magic, but I think there may have been a kind of a sheet of perspex between the pianos, which he was sort of shimmying across. But I never saw the Gillette video show again before or since, and there is no record of it anywhere. Well, there is one reference out there, the only one on the whole internet, which is the opening titles are part of the graphic designer's showreel VHS, which is called The Mind's Eye, Ah. which is only available in America. But that's the only reference I found, and it's just a a sort of copyright listing for it. So it has completely vanished. I mean, there was that weird thing around then of sort of very strange, specific tie-in promotions of pop yeah. music. Yeah. Arranged by people who had no idea what pop music was. I mean, there was that, do you remember there was that weird 7-Up hit of 1986 campaign where I think there was an album, there was a book, there, were probably, there was probably a cinema short. I mean, what was that all about? Yeah. There was Nescafe Frappe sponsored the network chart for a couple of years. Remember, you could send off a free Frappe shaker. I'm not sure anyone actually did, but... <laughs> What was the? What were they hoping to achieve with with any of this? I don't know. I think they. I think they just thought pop music. That's exciting, and you can sort of bathe in the glory of pop music and sort of hope it reflects on your own brand. I imagine what that's what they were thinking with Gillette. You know, it's kind of quite a workaday product, razor blades basically. But suddenly, suddenly they're now they're pop music razor blades, and you know, kind of you can shave to the beat of Bronsky Beat or Elton John. Well, that's kind of an interesting angle because looking at it in terms of the eighties, you know, the promotion around them was that very kind of macho American yeah. rock song oh, saying yeah. Gillette, the best a man can get with you know really stubbly blokes with women hanging off them in the adverts and so what do they have an out openly gay aggressively gay band and although we didn't know it at the time two gay men singing about camp icons it doesn't really work well i'm wondering whether somebody was using modern parts trolling gillette When they selected those two videos. Or maybe it was kind of a bit of your mum sort of selecting the videos. Oh, those, those I quite like those two songs. That, those, those are fine. But yeah, they've got, they've got a good beat. The, the, the videos are nice. So, so we'll share those to, to promote Rage Blades. Well, weirdly, those two videos 
all videos that I do have completely random stories about. Okay. Just by chance, which is Hit That Perfect Beat was actually featured in. There was a one-off children's BBC drama from, as you say, around the time of starting to gain credibility. Yeah. Called Sticks and Stones. Okay. About Scottish boy called Alex who moved to the northeast. And he he was ostracised by the locals, and so he teamed up with like you know he befriended the local Asian kids, you know, and they formed a little gang against the bullies. But it wasn't kind of it was very realistically portrayed in that they just avoided the bullies, that you know <laughs> they didn't take them on. But yeah. there was a bit set in a youth club where they're confronted by the racist thugs, and on the screen in the background, a video hit that perfect beat. Okay. And I think he was supposed to be implying, again, you know, that these macho bullies were listening to their favourite records. <laughs> which they probably thought was about hitting people. And that, it's not really about that when you listen to the lyrics. But the, the wrapper up on the first time I saw that was, do you remember sometimes when ITV were running ahead of schedule? Oh, they yeah. They put on, yeah. quote, pop video. Yes. I remember them showing that. And the announcer, I think it was probably Charles Foster, because given the voice <laughs> of hearing in my head, but said, and look out for a cameo from George Michael. Now, oh. A, it's not a cameo. <laughs> Cameo, it's almost a whole video. Yeah. But B, you know, it's got all this black and white footage of Silent Era starlets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One appeared with very tight blonde curly hair and quite yeah. similar features to George Michael. <laughs> and one of my sisters said, There he is. <laughs> And I think meant it. I remember there's something kind of quite futuristic and glamorous about the phrase video show. Obviously, we had we'd had the Kenny Everett video show. It felt like kind of that was the future of entertainment. In the future, everybody would have their own video show. But it just kind of gave it that sheen of glossiness and, you know, kind of a pop sensibility. It's a very mundane word now, but kind of back then it really had some kind of sort of cachet. In fact, it kind of has almost sleazy connotations now. It's weird. <laughs> you know, it feels cheap and nasty video when you look back yeah. at it. Yeah. There's that, the whole association with video nasties and so on. But at the time, yeah, there, there was an element of futurism to, Definitely. to it. Definitely. So let me ask you tim are there any supporting features that you can recall promotional weirdness or some kind of short film that kind of stuck in your head well the one that really stayed with me and again for years i thought it was only me that remembered this was the one before the empire strikes back yes black angel which is the kind of sword and sorcery thing which some yeah. of the crew made during downtime during the filming of it yeah. obviously you know at pinewood so it's got a lot of uk actors in it yeah. and it's yeah. you know very much it looks like Robin the Sherwood a couple of years earlier. I remember being fascinated by that. And that was never available anywhere. In fact, I think they only found the print of it a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And it's it's now on Netflix, I believe. But yeah, that really, really stayed with me. When I went to see Ghostbusters in 1984, the supporting feature was a documentary about the real thing, the 1970s Liverpudlian disco band. What? From about, it must have been made in about 1977, narrated by Simon Bates. Obviously, at that point, it was only seven years old. But the the, the the sort of the cultural pop gap from 1977 to 1984 was just huge. So you were kind of confronted by this kind of quite adept, flair wearing pop band to the 12 year old me. It was hilarious. I couldn't work out then, and I still can't work out now why they chose that 
you know, as a supporting feature for Ghostbusters. Well, what ties in with why did they have that big comeback the next year? I've never yeah. worked that out. Because I think when the, they showed up on Top of the Pops on BBC4, yeah. people were saying, oh, it was because the, the one of them that had the prize-winning dog started to get attention because he was winning at Crufts. But that turned out to be after oh, they'd yeah. had their hits. So It's a very slender reason to on which on which to kind of mount a comeback. But it wasn't even that. That's the thing. What, why was there the, the real thing revival with two and a half hits. It's bizarre. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any kind of logical reason for it. But yeah, maybe maybe it's kind of a delayed reaction to all the people who'd seen them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're snacking on the popcorn, waiting to see Ghostbusters. Suddenly they're confronted by the real thing and thought, we need to see these people. What, what are these people doing now? apart from breeding pedigree dogs. Let's hear from them again. I don't actually remember seeing the Gillette video show before Rocky Four. What I do remember is what happened after I saw it, because okay. a kid went berserk in the foyer, stopped singing <laughs> Eye of the Tiger and punching people in the face, including <laughs> me. <laughs> well, see, that's the pernicious effects of violence on, on the big screen there. There's a, there's a warning for us all. But he didn't even have the right song for the film. <laughs> that was the, the ridiculous thing. Okay, well, I do wonder if when you were on your way out from watching Rocky Four, you might have stocked up on your favourite snack at the time. And again, no clip I can use here, so here's something else. Okay, that was Carmen Munro singing One, Two, How Do You Do from the start of Forgotten Children's BBC programme, How Do You Do? Because, Chris, what was the One, Two bar? The One, Two bar was a chocolate bar that came in two halves, like a Twix. But the twist was that each half was individually wrapped with a sort of perforated strip between the two. So you could keep the second half for later. I mean, has anybody ever successfully kept <laughs> for later. I mean, again, this is one thing where I can find no evidence really of, of its existence. I don't know who made it. It didn't seem to last for very long, but it kind of stuck with me. I think the main reason it stuck with me was there was a kind of quite lavish TV commercial for the One Two Chocolate Bar, which itself came in two halves. You'd have the first half at the start of the break, the second half at the end of the break, which seemed like a huge, hugely exciting and revolutionary thing at the time. I think the sort of the theme of the advert is like a kind of sort of game show going on. But beyond that, I, I remember very little. Yeah, again, there's one mention out there, which is a do you remember thread, which has no replies on it, <laughs> which does confirm that the advert, it was a game show and it's themed mm. around how long you could wait before eating the second half. Mm. Now, an ad break, I would say, is actually quite a short length of time <laughs> for somebody to eat the second bit of a chocolate bar, even allowing for, you know, the almost instantaneous eating of it. Yes. You've only just finished, if you're lucky, the first bit by the end of an outbreak, surely. Yes. The whole, I mean, the whole thing seems kind of a quite nebulous hook on which to hang the launch of a new confectionery product. You can rip the thing in half and keep the second bit for later. I mean, that, that was the main selling point because I can't even remember what kind of chocolate bar it was. I think it was kind of like one, you know, with kind of like wafers and caramel. It's that, it was that kind of product. But that's sort of strayed from my memory. And just the form, the format 
that it came in is the, is the thing that sort of lodged itself in the back of my brain. Isn't it a bit kind of packaging over content? Like, there's nothing <laughs> exciting about the bar itself. I think it's very much a triumph of, of packaging over content to the point where you can actually imagine that someone's gone to the chocolate manufacturer and said, look, we can do this now. We can now package a bar with a you know, a perforated edge between two halves, so you can sort of tear it in half. That is very possibly how it came to be. I'm wondering, was it aimed at more adults rather than kids? Because, you know, the novelty of that with kids will wear off pretty quickly. Yeah. And it is kind of saying, you know, kind of lying, saying, look, you can be good, you can just have half of it. Yeah. And then the other half at a later point. So yeah. it's it's calorie controlled, as they used to say in those days. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the adult version of, you know, the sweet you can eat between meals without ruining your appetite. Yeah. You, you, can, you can have the first half you know, with your 11s, you can have the second half midway through the afternoon and that will tide you through the working day very nicely i mean i think i think i think you might be onto something there was that the dawn of sophisticated adult confectionery in the 80s I mean, i'm not sure if it stretches further back past that because as far as i can see again huge plug for phil norman and steve berry's book mm-hmm. here but it was very little kind of apart from after eights and their ilk which were had a weird adults only sheen to them the extent that you kind of thought some things like black magic were a bit naughty when you were a kid <laughs> Yeah. Reasons I can't explain, but in the 80s you started to get things like bits, you know that chocolate bar with bits in with the kind of neon lettering yeah. on it, yeah. where they yeah. were appealing to the yuppie market, and as I've mentioned here before, there were quirks, which are those weird things, a bit like vice versa now. But the one that sticks in my mind, talking about yuppie chocolate, I would say that the, the Mr. Wilmot Brown of chocolate bars <laughs> was the Cadbury's Gambit which was a very short-lived product. It was sort of a, a fusion of milk and plain chocolate. I loved Cadbury's Gambit. I think maybe I was trying to tap into that sort of that sophistication, that kind of like, you know, I've, I'm leaving behind, I'm putting away childish things, putting away, you know, the toffee crisp, and now I'm moving into the Cadbury's Gambit world. I can go one better than that, which was, I can't remember who made them, but the Harlequin Assortment. <laughs> Where they, they were very kind of pushed as, you know, the ultimate dinner party accessory. But do you not remember the advert for that? It had an animated Harlequin yes. kind of reciting a, a funny Shakespearean monologue to a harpsichord backing. <laughs> I just remember there was a bit where he went, and their name, well, haven't you guessed? Like, very, very, very bad Timothy Claypole. <laughs> and you're obviously supposed to think, ah, oh, ah, oh, these are erudite chocks, I will be bound. There's one box of chocolates which I don't remember at the time but I have seen the advert quite recently from a sort of reel of adverts from 1983 which featured Mel Smith as Cupid. I think they're Terry's chocolates. They may even just be called Terry's milk chocolates. Or something. <laughs> I don't think they put any effort into the, into the brand. Yeah, they put all the effort into kind of procuring Mel Smith and getting him to dress up as Cupid. That can't have taken much persuading. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you obviously kind of, you know, they were, you know, Smith and Jones were were not adverse to the to the advertising dollar in in any way, shape, or form. The 1980s were kind of like the boom time for kind of new boxes of chocolates. Again, I think you what you were alluding to earlier quite correctly is kind of like the idea of chocolates are a, are a luxury. You know, now's the time to sort of treat yourself. You know, you know, you're worth it. So kind of all these all these manufacturers sort of bombarded us with all these kind of ever more in inverted commas sophisticated products. And they're really just chocolates at the end of the Absolutely. day. 
Absolutely. Okay, well, if you had invested in some sophisticated chocolates, then you might well have set them down next to a coffee table book containing the artwork of the gentleman who I believe you don't know the name of, but who forms a basis for your next choice. Here's a bit of music from something you won't believe happened. Okay, that was a theme music from an animated series based on the cartoons of Mordillo. Chris, did you even know he was called that? To paraphrase Danny Baker, you have just taken off a very tight pair of shoes. <laughs> because that is the name that's kind of, you know, when there's a name just sort of eluding your grasp. I've got to say, the, the name that kind of stuck in my head was Peo, who was, of course, the, the creator of the Smurfs. Obviously, kind of, they're, they're, it sounds like they're from the same sort of school of art. So we should kind of talk about what this is, actually, because this has stuck in my head as, I can't think of a better way to describe it as the amusing cartoon football island stack poster. <laughs> I never had it. I never had this poster, but you could always see it when you were kind of flipping through that rack of posters for sale in, in Woolies. It, that was one you, you could kind of stop and, and linger on it. And what it was was a cartoon of, it's a big sort of, very tall, pillar-like, rectangular island in the middle of the sea with a football match going on on top of it. This island, there's nothing else on it. It's rectangular-shaped, and there's nothing else going on on top of this island ex- except a football pitch. And if my my dim memory serves, the kind of the ball has gone off the side of, <laughs> of the pitch. Not unsurprisingly, you might say, if you chosen to play a football match on a 50-foot-high rectangular pillar-like island. And so all the players are kind of, I think they're all kind of looking. The other thing that sticks in my head about this poster is that the participants all look like the generic antagonist from the Pink Panther show, that sort of generic man. That That's all I can remember. But as I say, Mordillo, suddenly that kind of, uh, it's kind of everything's, flooding back yeah i mean it appears that i don't think he ever quite reached that ubiquity of giles in terms of you know when you whenever you get to a relative's house almost a huge stack of giles books <laughs> you thought whoever reads them apparently there were a lot more dillo books around i don't remember ever seeing them but what i can't work out is what was the motivation here was it a satire of people who play football in high places <laughs> they won't be doing that again <laughs> Maybe it's just kind of the futility of sport and the futility of sporting endeavour. No matter how hard you try, you know, at some point, you know, it will go, it will go wrong. Actually, looking at it from the perspective of now, maybe it's a kind of early satire on, you know, FIFA selecting Qatar as as the venue for the 2022 <laughs> World Cup. You know, you know, they don't have the proper facilities. The climate's all wrong. But you know, some somewhere down the line, you know, money has changed hands. Brown envelopes have been exchanged. So you know, we've got to play the football match on the top of the big rectangular island stack in the middle of the ocean. I, I've no, I've no idea what the hell he was thinking. Well, there was, as I say, apparently it was the cartoon series based on it. <laughs> which I'm not sure it was ever shown over here. I think we would remember the sheer strangeness of that. But what could possibly have gone on in that? They just played the same football match in the same place every week and isn't it a bit like me one versus me two snooker with Richard Herring yeah again this is kind of the era where anything that kind of like had some kind of following 
that could be turned into a cartoon, you know, no bother. A few sort of related things that kind of sort of pop into my head. Obviously, there was Sport Billy, who sort of, I think he started life as some kind of FIFA mascot sort of promoting fair play. Isn't it interesting, though, that all that iconography from that era hasn't got a kind of retrospective wave of interest in it yet? No, you know, all, yeah. No, none of those posters are really in the same way that, you know, I can see from where we're sitting now. I can see two J.H. Lynch prints, you know, yeah. which for a long time we've just seen as tap, the sort of thing you bought. Uh, not even car boot sales, church fates, yeah. first thing on the Sunday yeah. morning. And now they're starting to go for a lot of money. But all those posters that were once everywhere, you know, the unicorn that said why or something and, you know, all, all those things, they're not really creeping back in yet. They're still well, in the area of ridicule. Oh, absolutely. It's, I don't... I, I don't quite know why why that is. I was trying to think about kind of what you would see a very clear memory of, you know, flicking through those posters. There's always kind of a lot of sort of Charlie Brown and Snoopy, a very kind of large drawing of Charlie Brown with a very profound thought bubble coming out of his head or kind of he's saying kind of something kind of quite quite, quite wry about 1970s American life. But yeah, you're right. They, they don't they don't seem to have any kind of cultural cachet. Maybe it's because, like, does the poster even still exist? I don't know, because again, top result for it on Google, apart from his Wikipedia page, is TV Cream. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I could have just looked it up on TV Cream and, uh, <laughs> and all that kind of the, all, all, kind of the anguish of, you know, the, of, of, of all these years. Mm. I'll, I'll be fair, it looks like a Phil Norman entry. I don't think you wrote it and then <laughs> forgot about it. But, but yeah, it, it is quite weird, really, that for all the talk of the 80s revival, it is an unloved decade culturally in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of things people just have no interest in at all. Yeah, I think you're right. Stuff like TV and, and music can sort of be endlessly re- recycled. Music can be endlessly played again on kind of 1980s radio stations and old TV shows can be repeated on retro TV channels. But a poster, why, where do you go with that? Unless, you know, the VNA do the Mordello sort of retrospective <laughs> season, where does this stuff go other than TV cream? Well, I'm hoping they do an exhibition of, you know, poster racks from the back of alternative shop. <laughs> and alongside that, you'll get, I like the Pope, the Pope smokes dope. <laughs> and those like, where it'd be a Bross poster, but they're in a the slightly different pose from the one that you'd seen on the Smash Hits cover. <laughs> That's obviously from the same session, but cheaper. Yes. And all, all of those classics like that. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm just going to ask quickly as a link into the next thing, Chris. What posters did you have up as a student? Okay, so the one that really sticks into my head. So I went to university in 1991. So I had a very big poster of Vic and Bob. Did you have one of Inspector Morse? I never had one of (laughs) Inspector Morse. (laughs) Well, I'm guessing that you didn't own this single then either. So let's just hear a bit of it. for recognising what that's a down-tempo rave version of. That's Morse, brackets, He's a Mystery to Me by Codex. Chris, 
Why did this exist? I don't know. For a long time, that stuck in my head as the rave version of the Inspector Morse theme. I think, as we've just heard, it's not that at all, is it? It's more, it's more akin to something like Sadness Part 1 by Enigma, but with the tune of the Inspector Morse theme on it. What I think had happened is there was definitely an episode of Inspector Morse where Morse and Lewis had to attend a rave in the course of their inquiries, not just as a sort of social occasion. I think I'd sort of got the two things muddled up, but I think this, so this came out in about 1992. This was the point where kind of that show was getting, getting a lot of critical acclaim. And, you know, somebody somewhere thought, well, we can, we can cash in on that and we'll, and we'll make a record. And obviously kind of the actual theme itself doesn't really lend itself to coming out as a single or being played on the radio. So they obviously thought, well, let's just make a sort of contemporary version of it. And so this is, this is what they've ended up with. Well, it's kind of the epitome of... I mean, it's first of all, it's completely at odds with what rave music was doing in terms of sampling at that point. You think of 1992, you think of Trip to Trumpton, yes. Sesame's Treat, yeah. wasn't there a version of Monkey? Everything was, <laughs> you know, going into that sort of 60s, yeah. 70s children's psychedelia. Yeah. Not a grumpy bloke going around Oxford, really. Also, it's quite patronising in some ways. It's like the epitome of... You know, I know Inspector Morse was very popular, yeah. but it was one of the first things where there was an assumption that because of that everyone liked it yeah you know, almost like somebody say you like this in your face you know like they would about like white christmas or something and there were people that didn't i will wager that a lot of the people that didn't were probably spending their entire weekends at raves yeah i think that's possibly why they went with this kind of sort of down tempo approach to it and now they kind of well, they wanted to make it contemporary but they couldn't you know the, the full-on sort of dance rave thing wouldn't work so it feels like this kind of halfway house thing where kind of it's contemporary but you know it's not it's not going to scare your dad who likes inspector morse and yeah <laughs> like he likes the car he likes the jaguar and also it, it also taps into i think and i'm wondering now whether this was made by the gentleman who actually did all the music for inspector morse a gentleman called barrington falung and there was a whole kind of culture with within the show which is kind of quite self-congratulatory where he would sort of insert clues to the name of the killer into the score in morse code it's, it's like the three two one clues isn't it no one nobody's sitting at home kind of like going oh yeah it's kind of well two dots there's a three dashes well that must mean it's the it's the bank manager that show you know as you say is very popular but very self-congratulatory about kind of things like that one thing that lends weight to your theory is the only proper credit i can find we should say first of all it's credited to codex which i think you've got a theory about yes so the creator of inspector morse is colin dexter so maybe, ah. so they sort of kind of condensed that. Yes, yeah, the sort of thing that they'd think was that's fiendishly clever. <laughs> well, yeah. that does point towards it being an official. I'm not even going to try and say his name. Project. But <laughs> the other thing is the the lone credit on it credits Janice Kelly with the operatic singing who did the oh. singing on the proper soundtrack. Oh yeah. But the other thing about it is those soundtracks did sell really well. I yeah. think there was more than one Morse album. But yeah. this appears to have been primarily conceived for the purpose of the second instalment of do you remember there was a Virgin Records compilation called Moods? Oh, I think yeah. in nineteen ninety one that had obviously it had Enigma on it, Crockett's yeah. theme, Orinoco Flow, Twin Peaks theme, Lily was here, things like that. 
it was very successful. They did the Mood 2 in 1992, where they were really scraping the barrel for stuff to go on. I mean, there's more Enya, there's Genesis. Yeah. There's that weird soundtrack The Edge did for some Irish film. Uh, Jean-Michel Jarre, The Beloved. But there's also Take 5 by Dave Brubeck, which, given it says it's a contemporary soundtrack collection, that's not very contemporary. I was about to say, this is the earliest stirrings of Chill Out music. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you mentioned Genesis and Dave Brubeck, who, you know, who do not really seem to kind of fit within that template at all. Oh, well, it gets better. There's a theme from 30-something. <laughs> and the Poirot theme, which is not ambient in anyone's book. But they've just put it on because it's another moody detective. But it's not it's kind of loud. I know it's slow, but it's kind of swaggering, isn't it? With a uh, yes. very voluble saxophone. There doesn't seem to be a very tangible link between detective shows and chilling out. Because, like, Surely detectives are kind of like, they're, you know, they're, they're forever thinking about, you know, trying to mull over, you know, trying to put together all the clues, you know, kind of who's murdered the principal of the Oxford College. That's not that, that's not conducive to relaxation. It's not, but there is. Unfortunately, there was a later link which resulted in one of the worst records ever made, which was, you know, obviously Michael Caine, bizarrely, is a huge fan of, you know, down-tempo, house, yeah. chill-out music and yeah. so on. There was that period around the time the Get Carter soundtrack was finally released properly over here because we'd only had... I think there were two singles from it, but the full soundtrack got released, I think, in the mid-90s, and it started to become really popular with chill-out club dance music DJs. And so somebody thought, why don't we do a chill-out mix of that? If you've never heard that, don't. Well, going back to the sort of early 90s, I loved that whole flurry of sort of dance versions of TV themes. My actual favourite of that genre was The Prisoner by FAB. By FAB featuring MC number six, yes! (laughs) And the video for that is actually properly brilliant. They've obviously gone to the trouble of sort of getting the original footage from ITC and kind of putting in there's there's bits of kind of number six watching himself on TV. Did you have the the full album Power Themes 90? I didn't at the time. I have (laughs) subsequently sourced it. There's another song which is great the lower reaches of the top 40 called Summer's Magic by a guy called Mark Summers. Yes. We sampled that BBC album, which came out in 1982 to mark the 60th anniversary of the BBC called On The Air. So the main sample was the Magic Roundabout, but um, it had kind of samples from Itmar and and things like that on it. That was a, that was yes. a, I loved that. I loved that track. It was great. And he was also on that Nigel Plater spoof documentary, The Return of the Magic Roundabout. You know, when he narrated the new episode yeah. of The Magic yeah. Roundabout, he did the spoof documentary for Channel 4. I think anticipating that he was going to get some stick for it. Yeah. Well, it's a comedy thing where he starts to, when he starts narrating them, receive mysterious threatening phone calls from <laughs> General de Gaulle and so on. And the character starts stalking him. Ah. But in his quest to find out what's going on, he finds Mark Summers, who did Summers Magic. <laughs> he says, have you heard what happens if you play the theme backwards and plays it on the piano? <laughs> I, lo- I love that. Do you remember the other two Magic Roundabout themed dance records from around then? It's Too Much Fun by The Chilling Crew, which is a weird kind of rap thing done by Woodlands Animation. Right. And there's also, there were so many rumours about this record, Everlasting Day by Magic Roundabout with a K, where one of the more credible rumours yeah. suggests it was one or the other of the KLF with Jason Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's ever got to the bottom of that. That was really weird. It came out in the generic sleeve that looked a yeah. bit like the BBC Records Roundabout series albums, which had the generic 
sleeves for you know the Animal Magic and Jack and yeah, Dory yeah. albums and so on. Yeah. So somebody was clearly having a massive laugh there, but nobody knows who it was. Yeah, well, there was no more early nineties rumor than, than <laughs> KLF and Jason Donovan collaborating <laughs> on a on a roundabout <laughs> It's literally all of my hobbies and interests. Okay, well, we're stepping a bit back further into a more cynical point of time for your next choice, which, again, no clip to use for this. So here's some familiar theme music. Okay, that's Jimmy Smith with the theme and the money programme, because Chris, your last choice is the British banknote keyring. Well, I, again, I have no idea whether this is its official title. I suspect it doesn't have, <laughs> have one. But I can't think of a better way to describe it than the British banknote keyring. So basically, this was a keyring which comprised four small plastic replicas of a £1 note, £5 note, £10 note and a £20 note, which are all sort of bound together at the top left corner. So you could sort of flick them together as a kind of book, or you could fan them open ostentatiously, like you were the owner of £36. (laughs) (laughs) Or, as any elderly relative would have said, like Rockefeller. (laughs) I was going to say Godge Gardner, but you I kind of, people always kind of, I, when I was a kid, whenever someone mentioned Rockefeller, I, d- I didn't know that that was, uh, that there was a real person. I thought it was just a, a, a Rockefeller, a fella who, <laughs> who was a rocker and also wealthy. I've no idea where I got the, the British banknote keyring from. I have a vague memory. Again, yeah, the memory cheats. I have a vague memory that I got it from the gift shop at Nosley Safari Park. Because I was entirely the sort of place that would be selling something like that. I was trying to think about the kind of the, the sort of ubiquity of the keyring when you're a kid, because essentially you don't have any need for a keyring because you don't have any keys. But you have this compulsive urge to sort of get keyrings and collect keyrings because you know it gives you this kind of vague air of sort of feeling grown up. I've got you know I've got a keyring. All I need now is the key. <laughs> You feel vaguely grown up, how old you've got half of what you need. Well, keyrings were sort of a status symbol. The one that really sticks in my mind was the. Do you remember there were ones where it was a brief fad in the mid 80s for. I mean, they were really bulky, but when you whistled, they beeped. <laughs> so you could locate your keys if they'd gone missing. You know, it immediately ended all Jasper Carrot routines <laughs> about not being able to find your keys. <laughs> Although I've never forgotten the brilliant line about that's where Lord Lucan is. He just attached himself to some keys. And waited. But yeah, there obviously there was a good intention behind these. You know, it was probably for harassed parents. You know, trying to get out, thinking, "Oh my God, where are my keys? I oh, know I whistle, they'll beep." Yeah. It's just everyone got them and brought them into school, and someone would whistle, and the entire classroom would explode with beeping. <laughs> it was around the same time that kind of the the hourly chime on digital watches. Began. Oh yes, yeah. And again, kind of you would have a kind of sort of 40 second period because everyone's sort of watches were set slightly differently. So <laughs> at the hourly time, you'd get about sort of 20 hourly times spread over a 40 second period. And yeah, I, I remember I remember the whistling key ring. I remember 
the key rings with a little latch, which sort of affixed onto your belt loop. Oh, yes. And there was a cord, which was like kind of like a curly sort of telephone receiver cable. So you could keep your imaginary keys in your pocket and then just sort of spring them out. <laughs> yeah, kind of like a yeah, kind of like a sharpshooter kind of withdrawing withdrawing his pistol. Or you could just swing the keys round and round and round very fast and until somebody said you're going to have someone's eye out. <laughs> that was a perennial fear that you don't hear anymore, was it? <laughs> it's almost like something, you know, roughly the size and shape of a bollard or something would say, you'll have someone's eye out with that. <laughs> and it wasn't it's not not just you will blind Somebody, yeah, you, the impact will be so great that their eye will will actually come out. It will detach itself from its socket and come out. Well, I remember an elderly teacher saying for that reason when I was in junior school that jacks and ollies were forbidden, and I was like, "What are they? What are jacks and ollies?" <laughs> oh dear. Well, yeah. I mean, kind of. I, I guess we, if you're a teacher and you're an elderly teacher, you will have seen all all manner of crazies. Crazy oh yes. I've never forgotten the poor teacher who said that about 1989, for some reason we were looking a bit at the Aeneid in English, and he said, the Furies, not the pop group. <laughs> and there was just a massive silence. <laughs> but I have vague awareness that there may have been an act called the Furies at some yeah. point. Yeah, but, you know, when you think about it, it was only like just over 20 years earlier. Yeah. Poor blokes, they'd be forgotten that much. But he must have been using that joke. For decades, yeah. and not yeah. noticed that it had fallen out of fashion. So the British banknote keyring, I did find one for sale on Etsy, but it was they, they wouldn't ship outside Australia. So I've no idea why. <laughs> why, why did it end up in Australia? Surely they had their own currency. So so why why is this one? Because I, I would you know quite happily like to have one now, but, but it's, it's in Australia for some reason. Well, it sounds like the sort of thing you get in those dreadful shops that you have now, directly opposite almost every major tube station. <laughs> where it's, you know, kind of a London's of London oh. with a, a phone box outside oh, oh. and, you know, a picture of a beef eater singing She Loves You, Yeah, 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 in the window. <laughs> sure, they have that, they'll have those in there amongst all those terrible gifts. But... The thing that I always associate with those shops is is the postcard of Princess Diana's, I was going to say disembodied head, but that's... <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just, it, it's just her head and the postcard is in that shape. And the same with uh, you know, other members of the royal family. So they have those kind of rotating racks of those. That's what I associate with those, with those <laughs> terrible shops. Well, the last time I went in one, I saw one of those racks of you know party masks where it's oh, yes. you know stolen from the Vic and Bob thing of yeah, the yeah. George Michael face and so yeah. on. Where it's yeah. got you know obvious people like Beyonce and so on. And there's a P.S. Morgan one. <laughs> so somebody's going to have a terrible party, aren't they? <laughs> Oh, Surprise! I've come to stink the place out. <laughs> what was the thought process going on there? Do they, they just think he's famous? We will sell a lot of those. He's not. I, I deny he's even famous. <laughs> well, he makes he a lot of people. Well, he makes a lot of people angry. But, yeah. Yeah, it's a bizarre choice. It is a bizarre choice. <laughs> what I wish they'd do though is like masks of like terrifying sort of creed era childhood iconography you know there are, there's a test card girl and clown one oh, or, or yeah. clown from Campbell green or tufty yeah. 
or anyone like that. I mean, that, surely that's a, a market waiting to be caught. The spirit of dark and lonely water. Yeah. <laughs> that's just put a bag on your head. For <laughs> Actually, don't do that, because that's the sort of thing that we're warning against. Or, you know, Duncan Preston from the uh, Don't Go With Strangers. <laughs> that would have to be really specific, because people might think you're just in Victoria and want to see it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd have to wear a kind of sort of a uh, sort of 1970s polo neck sweater with that, just like <laughs> poking your head out of a of a of a Austin Maxi or something. <laughs> I've got to mention here. Uh, last year, I went to a friend's sort of landmark birthday party where they yeah. said, "Come with something from TV from your childhood." <laughs> there was somebody there who went as. You won't be able to beat this. The sign from the start of that weird public information film where the boy tries to tightrope walk across the railway. What? The sign about the fine if you trespass on the railway. Somebody just made a big banner of that and wore it around his neck. <laughs> well, kind of, uh, yeah, I, did people get the reference immediately or did he? Sort of... I did! <laughs> <laughs> That's all that mattered. <laughs> But if you managed to get hold of one of those key rings, would you go as Gonch Gardner? <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I would quite have, I would have, well, you know, I'd quite happily go as Gonch Gardner to, to have any sort of social function. <laughs> there you go, everyone. If you need a Gonch Gardner for your next social function, let Chris know. Chris, <laughs> it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Top of the Box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Henry VIII, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.